Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Um, as a, someone fascinated in the history of uh, esotericism and, and magic in the West, one cannot uh, avoid a, uh, uh, an obsession even with the notorious and marvelous Dr. John Dee. Um, I probably read, uh, I think John French's biography was the first one I read a very, very long time ago. And one of the things that's always interested me about Dee is the way that he, he, he serves as, as both a myth and a secret history in the sense that there's, from the get-go, there was already a kind of mythic uh, penumbra around him. You know, he, sh- he sort of is almost immediately transformed into uh, seminal figures within English literature, uh, Prospero and uh, Shakespeare's Tempest probably being the most famous, but hardly the only one. Um, and at the same time, he's kind of a hidden figure for mainstream historians. Uh, and so as someone who, who dove, dove into the esoteric side of things, uh, quickly came across him more and more. Uh, and his significance as both a figure who was straddling what we would now call science uh, and esotericism in that rich, rich, uh, multidimensional world of, of Renaissance philosophy and, and magic, um, but also as someone who set in motion a lot of things that then carry on in uh, more contemporary forms. And, of course, there's many dimensions to the modern uh, esoteric, but some of them we can trace really directly uh, back through D, or at least through uh, different ideas uh, of D. And uh, so I was very, very happy to finally get around to reading uh, the most significant book on John Dee for, for many years, at least for me, uh, which is Jason Louv's John Dee and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. And I admit it took me a little, little longer than it should have been to get around to it, but that's just how the, uh, the stack O books uh, works in my life. And um, I, I wanted, what I really appreciated about this book is that um, as someone who got a PhD in basically in esotericism and, and mysticism, is that I, I've become you know sort of trained or, or used to a certain kind of discourse in the academy, you know, which is very, very, very careful about sources, very, very careful about overstepping the boundaries of what we can say, very concerned about uh, about falling in love overly with the material. Uh, and indeed entering into the kind of popular discourses that are usually the place where um, pe- at least people like me first discover um, esoteric and magical history in the sense that that's usually written by people who are also magicians, who are also deeply invested in the esoteric things that they're writing about. And while they can be excellent scholars in some ways, there's a, a, often a distortion field and sometimes quite a strong one. And Jason's book is a, is a really wonderful blend of the two, uh, because he did a, a, a lot of history, a lot of hard reading. All the books that I knew about and, and, and many more um, were not just mentioned, but integrated into his story so that the historical materials that he's dealing with um, are, are very rich and, for the most part, uh, very strong. 
at the same time, he's writing ultimately as a magician, as someone who um, sees these currents and flows not merely as events in history, but as uh, allegories, as uh, hints, as forces, actual living forces that enter into history, that change lives, that change minds, that change uh, the course of things. And so there's sort of a, that mythic dimension is brought in and uh, used to sort of take the argument farther than anybody would if they were trying to write it for, uh, you know, a PhD or something. And so it, it, the book for me was an incredibly delicious because it didn't ever insulted my intelligence. Uh, it, t- it told me a lot of details and offered some very fascinating um, interpretations of history that were that are complicated and not the normal things that you might expect from an esoteric or you know, a, a, a magic identified author. And at the same time, he's mounting a very interesting uh, and persuasive argument about the long course of esotericism, how it informs the modern world, how it informs the large shapes uh, of history that only someone who was willing to enter into that magical framework uh, could really uh, try to pull off. Um, I was first uh, uh, aware of Jason's work probably in the early 2000s, first started reading him, uh, and then, of course, uh, the book he edited, in, uh, I think it came out in 2005, uh, uh, um, Generation Hex, really a, a landmark book of, of articulating a kind of millennial magic uh, that was young, uh, edgy, uh, informed by chaos magic, but not simply iterating what at that point had already become some established ideas in, in chaos magic. And since then, he's gone on to build a really interesting uh, Empire of Ultra Culture, the name of his podcast and uh, uh, blog, and uh, and he's involved with lots of things on there. You can check it out. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit more uh, later, but I just want to dive into the John D. stuff. So, um, Jason, thanks for joining me on Expanding Mind. Yeah, thanks so much, Eric. It's it's a pleasure to finally meet you, and thank you for that, that summary, and the, I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. It's funny that you you really summarized a lot of that really well in terms of all the different hats I had to wear writing this. I mean, you mentioned the esoteric angle. I don't know if I would say I, I write ultimately from the perspective of a magician. I would say more, you know, just as a maybe a journalist or a curious person. But I'm certainly willing to wear that hat if only for the reason that it, it is one of many worlds that I have a lot of experience in. So in reading somebody like John D. It's just apparent to me what he's talking about, whereas for other people, it might not be just because they're not familiar with that area. But it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, the boundaries of academic work. I have to say all the craziest material in this book came straight from academic sources, you know, particularly Deborah Harkness's work, her doctoral dissertation at UC Davis, um, uh, Nicholas Cluley. This is something I discovered again and again in my life, particularly with esoteric information, but really with everything, all the greatest information is hiding in plain sight, often in academic works. Um, And that includes, you know, and all the time I've been working as a journalist, I've been constantly shocked by, for instance, how many people throw out conspiracy theories online and the discourse about conspiracies and all, all the things like this. I mean, 
you don't need me to tell you. And like, nobody listening needs me to tell them. All you have to do is go to the library or an academic library and read the actual history of the world. And you will find things more shocking and bizarre than anything that anyone's capable of spouting on the internet. And it's actually valid, you know? And so that was really true in the case of John D when I really got into the academic writing, um, you know, all this stuff about, for instance, the plan of the angels to uh, establish a worldwide hermetic empire. I mean, that sounds like crazy YouTuber territory, but that's straight from, you know, Deborah Harkness's uh, doctoral work at UC Davis and, and many other writers, Nicholas Cluley actually was the first person uh, to mention that. So, but it's interesting because I found a fundamental split. Of course, John D. himself is, you know, was Queen Elizabeth I's academic advisor. He was the person that really laid the groundwork for modern science and certainly the spread of higher mathematics to England and laid the groundwork for the British Empire. So he's this fundamental, pivotal figure in world history as important or perhaps maybe a bit more than Isaac Newton and people like that, or Francis Bacon, for instance, both of whom were very deeply influenced by Dee's work, although they didn't publicly talk about it. But Dee is kind of has been persona non grata because he was interested in both the, as we might say, the scientific side of things and also the magical side of things and spent a lot of time engaged in the occult. But we have to remember this was at a period in history where there hadn't been a clear distinction made between those two things. Modern science, as we understand it, hadn't even been uh, codified yet and, and wouldn't be until after Dee's death. So um, Dee himself is this fascinating figure to study as somebody whose brain was firing on all cylinders, who was looking at both the hyper-rational scientific and mathematical view of the world and also the occult and the spiritual and the intuitional side of the world, just because that was the episteme, that was the worldview he was living in. And so in assessing, trying to write a proper biography or, or retelling of his life, I had to wear all those hats and put all that back together. And this was kind of frustrating because, well, it was fascinating, but I wrote it out of frustration because I noticed that, you know, most of the academic writing was, as you say, for the most part, outside of the sources I mentioned, um, unwilling to cross that line. So, for instance, um, some recent biographies of, of D have just brushed over the magic stuff and left it to like three pages out of the entire um, biography. And on the other side, there's the occult writers who are writing about the occult side of D, but they're certainly not, you know, and those can be great books, but they're not really coming at it from an academic perspective. There's no, you know, clear sources. It's you know, a lot of conjecture and a lot of personal anecdote and, and assumption about how things work usually back, you know, usually mixed in with Golden Dawn and Crowley stuff, which came much later. So there's kind of, there's a real blind spot in both of those approaches. Of course, obviously the occult side doesn't understand the greater context of what these things really were, their place in history. and certainly doesn't usually come out of that with a whole lot of academic rigor. On the other hand, the academic writers about D outside of the ones I mentioned, have largely just refused to engage in the esoteric or spiritual side of his life. And for me, this is just disingenuous. It's just, it's just not, not intellectually honest. Now, I understand that in the modern world, we, yes, we have very clear boundaries on what is rational and what is not. And, you know, what counts as pure tested science and what doesn't. But in writing about D, we're not 
you know, we shouldn't be as, you know, if somebody's working as a historian, I feel that they have a duty to take, to get into somebody's head and show the world as they saw it and not to just, you know, you know, judge somebody 400 years later and just sever this whole part of them. Well, you're just not going to understand the narrative. You're not going to understand who this person was. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's a funny one. I, I think there's something temperamental in in those of us who are who are driven to that broader, multi-dimensional view, particularly when it comes to uh, religious or or spiritual or mystical belief. And and for me, it can it, it reminds me of like I think I've told the story before, but a, a very a, a turning point in my own intellectual career was in a high school physics class, senior year, and it was taught by this very conservative former Navy guy who had like a buzz cut and was kind of a boring teacher. And I mostly spent the time flirting with girls in the back corner. Uh, but I was very interested in some of the stories, particularly the historical stuff, because I'm just sort of attracted to these large forms of history in a similar way that you are. Uh, and I remember he was talking about Kepler. And so we're talking about Kepler and the second law and how, you know, the elliptical orbits and things like that. And I can't remember whether it was in the book or something he mentioned. I think it was in the book that that they sort of, as an aside, went, well, well the funny thing is, is that Kepler thought his elliptical orbits weren't, weren't half as important as the way that he was able to model the relationship, the ratio of the planetary orbits to each other by placing the five platonic solids within one another in this way that exactly mirrored the, the ratios of the orbits. And I remember just being like, wait a second, that's like, and I was like, you know, excuse me, <laughs> mister, what the, uh, isn't that like incredibly important? I mean, we have to like take that worldview within our account to understand the importance of this elliptical orbit. And I could see from his side, that didn't make any sense at all. It was completely irrational. You just, you look through history, you select those moments that are useful for the evolution of a certain kind of science, and then everything else is dross. And it's like, for me, it was the opposite. It was a very clear kind of line in the sand. Um, and, I, you know, I think things are changing in a lot of ways uh, overall uh, in terms of respecting this kind of uh, range of points of view. But, but one of the reasons I meant by saying that, that, I don't maybe ultimately is not the best word, but that you write as a magician as well, is that you're willing not simply to reconstruct the magical or esoteric dimensions of this guy who in other ways was a scientist and, and also a very pragmatic thinker about uh, Britain's possibilities and the, the future of the empire, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, but that you were willing to look at the development of modern history through a religious and esoteric lens, and not just an occult one, but also a Christian one, and not just because people were motivated by Christian ideas, but that the large shape of modern history can be seen as exemplifying, manifesting, uh, incarnating certain tensions and possibilities that can only be understood as in, in religious or esoteric terms. And that's the part where a lot of other people would kind of beg off. It's, and, and, and that is sort of manifested in the way that you make the point, which I'd, I'd you know, like to hear a little bit more about, that it's not uh, trivial that if we read D closely, as you do and, and you, you know, other, other scholars have done, we can see the, the glimmerings of the future British Empire. 
And, and and so talk a little bit about that. What was it that Dee saw? You know, this was actually kind of before his great um, uh, plunge into the into the angelic conversations. But what was it that he saw that nobody else saw at the time that, in a way, presaged what would happen uh, with the modernity and the and the modern British Empire? Well, yeah. There's let's see. There's a lot to there's a lot to think about there. And what you said, I think, I feel that. My approach, if I was to talk about my approach to writing about these things or talking about Dee's empire, it's really simple and, and I feel very pragmatic. And it's, you know, my approach to history and my approach to understanding the world can be summarized very simply. It's just that the history of the world is the history of people's beliefs, right? And, you know, a writer that I love uh, you might be surprised is, you know, of course, Christopher Hitchens, right? And, and you know, in preparing to write this book, I was going through the most severe arguments against um, faith and belief. And I'm a huge fan of, of people like Hitchens and also, you know, hardcore skeptics like my favorite is Dr. Stephen Novella, who are unequivocally um, against any type of pseudoscience, any type of claims on belief, any type of claims on things like angelic visitations. And in the beginning of God is not great. And, and throughout the book, God is not great. Hitchens, you know, very viciously attacks um, the delusions of people as he sees them throughout history of, Oh, Muhammad thought he talked to angels. Oh, uh, Joseph Smith thought he talked to angels, like, like really looking at the history of humanity as a history of delusion and error and quite savagely right famously for christopher hitchens and, and you know he was such an incredible wit and and so i you know there's a big part of me that just completely agrees with that at the same time however and of course i may be betraying my kind of robert anton wilson type approach of i'm quite willing to put on all these hats i'm quite willing to put on the extreme skeptic or the you know, the magician hat or the believer or the whatever it happens to be in the moment, it turns you into a better writer, it turns out, because you can see things from lots of different angles. Um, but my view, I, I just I just think that if you actually look at history, and I'm a firm believer in respecting people's model of the world, and I don't think that we'll ever be able to understand people unless we're able to at least temporarily inhabit their model of the world to understand why they think the way they think and why they do the things they do. And that applies not just to the modern world, but it applies to all human history. Yes, for modern people, it's quite nonsensical, the idea that somebody could sit in a cave, in the case of Muhammad, for you know several years and then be given the book of, uh, or be given the Quran by the Archangel Gabriel. Um, but whatever we think of that, it is undeniable that Islam is the, you know, the, one of the largest and soon to be the largest religions on the planet and has moved and will move more people than Christopher Hitchens ever will, or that, you know, that worldview ever will for better or for worse. It's, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting any value judgment on it. It's just a neutral statement. My goal is to see reality as it is, and we just can't see reality as it is unless we also factor in people's beliefs, because people's beliefs are, you know, causally responsible for their behavior. And so kind of my point in this book, leading into Dee's empire, is you can't understand things like why the British Empire was built, or why the American empire was built or the involvement of America in the Middle East or the rise of the Christian right or the spread of Islam or any of these things. You can't simply understand these things as driven by 
economic pressure or class tension or market forces or even, you know, which is as which is much more popular now, you know, genetic theories uh, and things like this, um, you know, behavioral psychology and things like this. You can't understand this. It, that's overcomplicating it for what is necessary. All you need to do is look at what people believed because that's what influenced their decisions. In the case of D, um, D, of course, was probably the smartest person in Europe at the time. Arguably, certainly, the, he certainly had the, the biggest library. He was the most, he was the best read person in England and probably in Western Europe and had assembled the world's largest library at that point that we know of. D uh, was a mathematics student and he'd spent his entire academic career studying um, higher mathematics and optics and physics at a time, basically the STEM track, at a time when these things were not well-liked in England. England at this time was very humanist. It was very concerned with the study of the classics and Aristotle and Plato because of, uh, because of the end of the Dark Ages and so forth. And so Dee had gone to the Netherlands to study science. And, and it's, worth, there, it's worth repeating here that science and mathematics were considered the black art in England. People were quite afraid of them in this kind of comical way. And, but Dee also became interested in astrology and Kabbalah and the hermetic sciences. And because at the time there wasn't any difference between these things, all of his, his teachers in Europe were all fascinated with these things. And we have to understand what the worldview was at this time, which is there was no separation between knowledge. There was no separation between disciplines. What we would now consider scientists or philosophers at this time during the, you know, during the Elizabethan period, the pre-Elizabethan period were simply concerned with understanding reality and because of their belief system, because of the influence of Christianity in its multiple forms at that time, they were concerned with that, you know, their belief system was that everything was there to see in reality. God had created existence and his signature was present in the creation. And so if you wanted to understand reality, you had three avenues. One was the studying direct study of nature. One was the direct study of scripture. And the other was the direct study of mathematics and physics and astrology and all these new sciences that would reveal deeper codes and patterns to, um, to the natural world and therefore reveal the thumbprint of the creator in the creation. They also had a very different view of the world than we do now, where we now tend to think of science as progressing forward into the future. At the time, the narrative of progress had not been invented yet, at least not in the same sense. The worldview at the time because, frankly, because of the Dark Ages, because so much information had been lost during, you know, after the fall of Rome, and that Europe was just getting hold of, for the first time, uh, not just the printing press, but for the first time was getting hold of things like the works of Plato and Aristotle, that the process of gaining knowledge was the process of remembering and regaining what had been lost. So really, ultimately, the quest of magic was to go backwards in time go back to the original knowledge that in theory must have been revealed to the creator, uh, excuse me, from the creator to the creation. And that had been progressively forgotten and lost over time. And so this idea of mankind as being in an amnesic state, which now survives in kind of the new age and occult world, sometimes with this kind of Gnostic idea that humanity has forgotten its original state was the dominant intellectual climate as opposed to the narrative of progress that we have now. So D's, D's overarching plan 
was that the entire world needed to be returned to its pre-fallen state. And his plan for doing that was that there should be, a, you know, in the name of the book, there should be a worldwide empire of angels. The phrase British empire actually did come to him before the angelic sessions, but he claimed that it was given to him by the archangel Michael. And what he meant by that was that, of course, at this time, both England and Spain were locked in a, a cold war for a new world, as I call it. And there was really a cold war to see whether the Protestant or Catholic bloc would get hold of the new world first. The new world was often considered to be, um, you know, alchemical lead or terra firma, you know, like the beginning, a, a new experiment could be done in the new world where a new humanity could be built that was free from the control of the Catholic church, that was free from all of the baggage of Europe's history. And that project later was carried forward by Francis Bacon, the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, and really is kind of the founding DNA of America. It was fulfilled in the idea of America as a free, you know, like a free, enlightened country, free of all these old uh, restrictions. So D, as an intelligence agent, came up with the plan that basically what he had, what he pulled out of his reading is he thought that America had previously been visited by King Arthur or excuse me, Arthur and also Madoc later Madoc, uh, another English King and that the English or the British had already laid claim to America in the 10th century and prior. And therefore he thought that this built a legal case for England laying claim to the new world because they'd been there before Spain. And so he proposed this idea of a British empire and for him, Brit British meant uh, uh, Britannia in the mythical sense and meant Arthurian and rather than just English. And so he had this really, he had this, you know, epochal vision of Elizabeth becoming a world sovereign of a new Protestant new world order, or really a hermetic new world order in which not only England would control the entire planet, but also that through his angelic technology, his occult techniques for contacting angels, that people all over the world would be able to make direct contact with divinity without the intermediary of the Catholic church. Now that cuts, that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of intellectual overhead, but it's actually real simple. What he did is he undercut the, he, he undercut the Catholic world on both fronts. Right. All right well, I mean, one of the things also that you pointed out that I, w I was really interested in was the way that he recognized that England's power would come, have, you know, England had a lot of timber, we could make a lot of ships, and it would become a maritime empire because it's really at that point the idea of a whole of the of an atlantic civilization where power has to do with the ability to move uh, uh both armies and goods through uh, across the seas was just sort of emerging and and now we can recognize that it's really that logic the logic of an atlantic empire of a of a sea uh, based uh, empire that really sets in motion all what we think of as modernity, not just in terms of who has the power, but also the very model of crisscrossing waves, influences, goods moving across, essentially globalization. So we, he's recognizing the force that we would rec that we now think of as globalization on on these multiple levels. But you also emphasize how that th that within that model is not so much 
simply the idea of power over the earth, but also, to use the great phrase, the immanentizing of the eschaton, which is in a way the key motif of this, the historical story you tell, both in terms of what Dee was imagining. Hey, if we do these things, if we get the angels lined up, we can create a world religion, we can have a new kind of sovereign, a new sort of Protestant hermetic kingdom, and that will bring the end. And then you carry that forward and you talk about how, you know, Crowley with his sort of revolutionary view of the, the you know, the, 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 the new uh, uh, era of Horace and all that. Uh, is also a form of that, and the way in which that gets instantiated farther on through Parsons and through, uh, in a way, the logic of contemporary uh, globalization. And it's, but it's worth staying with that phrase a little bit, the immunitizing of the eschaton, because it'll lead to a, a question for you. So, you know, of course, people like you and me, we first read that in, in Illuminatus. We read that in Robert Anton Wilson, where it's kind of, again, a not dissimilar uh, plot uh, by the Illuminati and other various figures to essentially bring on the eschaton by force. But the phrase itself comes from this conservative historian, Eric Vogelin. And what for Vogelin, what it meant is that he was trying to make a distinction between good orthodox historical forces like good old Christianity and uh, forms of social movements or ideologies that he saw as heretical or dangerous. So this include Marxism, but also utopianism, and certainly anything that was at all countercultural or uh, uh, radical in that kind of sense. And he saw these all as being false because they were trying to immanentize the eschaton. That is, actively bring on the end times rather than just accepting God's grace and God's providence. Uh, and so what the, the question it leads to, now, of course, that model doesn't really apply to today's Christians because many of today's Christians are also trying to immunitize the eschaton, the support, and, and you, you have a wonderful passage. Some of my favorite stuff in your book is at the very beginning where you talk about how we, if you want to understand American Christianity, you have to understand dispensationalism. If you want to understand the role of Israel in the modern world, you have to understand dispensationalism and in a way, the immanentizing of the eschaton that's going on for conservative Christians who want Israel to do well so that they can, the Messiah can come and the whole thing gets triggered and there we go. And again, if you're, if you think, you, go ahead. Isn't belief fun? Yeah, isn't belief, isn't belief fun? But here's the, here's the question I have for you. In fact, I want to read a passage uh, from the book if I, if I still kept it marked. So, and it picks up on this idea of the kind of Protestant global kingdom. The new idea that anybody could and must forge their own spiritual relationship with Christ outside the bounds of the church would steadily progress toward our postmodern, hyper-individualistic culture, where not only is each individual sovereign over their own life, but even God has been discarded, leaving the individual as little more than a consumer of models of self that are marketed to them by transnational corporations or that emerge from social media, where, as Crowley put it, every man and woman is a star. This is the fruit of the West's push towards ever greater individualism and egalitarianism, begun by the Reformation and accelerated by the French Revolution. So I agree with that. But what's interesting about it is that it, it, precisely that argument could be could come out of the mouth of, of, of a Vogelin. That is, 
of an extremely, of an essentially reactionary traditionalist conservative view. And so my question for you is because I recognize, okay. like me, you wear, let me finish, you wear multiple hats. And what do we do when we come to the point where we can see the truth? of these extremely conservative accounts of the development of modern historical forces and and how we sort of frame that within a larger view that recognizes the limitations of those views as well, if that question makes sense. Yeah, well, just to back up a bit, so the phrase eschaton was in, actually was in wide use at the time and, and was used in the Elizabethan period. And in that context was used to explicitly describe the second coming of Christ. That was, you know, the, the meaning of the Greek phrase. So, you know, my, some of my presuppositions, let's, let's say in writing this history is just in, in spending so much time going through this is the his, here's a presupposition, right? The history of Western culture can be much better understood when you factor in Christianity, which has been, you know, what, whatever one feels about it personally now in the 21st century is actually kind of irrelevant to the fact that it has been the dominant ideological force in Western culture pretty much up until the early 20th century and really kind of still is, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of the eschaton, it turns out to be really simple. One of the reasons, when people first you know, you mentioned Robert Anton Wilson and some of the ideas of chaos magic and things like that. When people first encounter the occult, it's very confusing and mostly they're reading second or third or fourth or seventh hand interpretations of primary material. And the occult more than any other field of study, I think, lends itself to people reading whatever they want into it, right? And one of the primary reasons is it's a discarded study. So there's no central authority saying, you know, uh, there's no central governing body. Um, so it's qu been quite confusing in people's 20th and 21st century reads of the occult, obviously Crowley uh, and Parsons, and then the neo-pagan movement and witchcraft and all these things. There's been a lot of confusion about, at least historically, what magic has actually been, which is quite simple. It's just it's just an outgrowth of Christianity, at least within the context of the Western esoteric tradition, not all esotericism all over the world, but it, it cannot. And the, you know, the point I make very clearly in this book, which I think will probably be quite uncomfortable for a lot of people is it just can't be divorced from the narrative of Christianity. Obviously so much intellectual overhead and work and acrobatic fumbling acrobatics were put in by people like Crowley to de-Christianize uh, magic, but ultimately it can't be, at least not the Western esoteric tradition. In terms of understanding the, the eschaton and the push towards the end of the world, it's real simple. In the model of the what the Western esoteric model of enlightenment, certainly within this period and prior and afterwards, was simply going backwards through time to recover one's divine state. It comes out of the the assumption that is inherent in Western civilization, which is not inherent for the most part in Eastern um, esotericism outside of maybe Buddhism, that we ha are in some ways separated from the divine or we've fallen or there's some barrier, you know, between humanity and divinity, some type of abyss, right, as it's described in, in Kabbalah. 
Um, so the, the quest, the intellectual quest, was to go back in time to recover one's own divine state and become, in Latin, mens adeptus, meaning basically enlightened within that context. Now, that would be the first step. The second step would be then um, an enlightened sage, enlightened through the practices of Western es esotericism, would then be working to enlighten society around them or heal the world around them. So for examples of that, we can look at the Rosicrucians who claim nothing but to heal the sick. And yet, you know, the whole point of the Rosicrucian movement was to spark a new intellectual era, an era of freedom from the Catholic church and to be working in, working in secret as an invisible brotherhood and, and, and all of this. And then the third and final turning of the, the Western Dharma, if you will, the, the third one would be the enlightenment of the entire planet. And what that really means is returning the entire planet to its pre-fall state. Now, there's a script for this uh, that's been with us for quite a while. It's the Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelation essentially describes the trial, uh, you know, the trial by fire and tribulation um, and great suffering of the entire world to return it to its pre-fall condition to return it to God, right? And that's at least one read of it. And that script revelation has been at the core of, I, at least I argue in this book, has been at the core of the Western project, certainly in that turbocharged form since the Protestant Reformation. The Catholics largely prior to the Reformation, uh, Catholicism largely downplayed Revelation, saw it as an allegory of the battle of good and evil in every person's heart, and they weren't too concerned with it. You know, Catholicism is much more, um, you know, much more forgiving, you know, uh, in a certain way of, you know, people's foibles and doesn't really have this idea of, you know, you know, we're going to nuke the planet so that everybody is saved. Now we want it all now. That's, you know, a much, you know, it starts with the Protestant Reformation and then really picks up steam in the 19th century in England. Um, but the, so the, the, the bringing about of the eschaton, the, the original meaning, the idea that uh, human actors could bring about the eschaton is, turns out to mean that people enlightened by ritual magic could not only take uh, enlightened actions within the world to bring about the salvation of humanity, but that ultimately through things like uh, secret societies and networks and conspiracies and the founding of new countries, the creation of empires. And finally, you know, we might perhaps say some of the actions of the, uh, of America throughout the 20th century and, and even presently um, essentially force the, enlightenment of the entire planet. So we can obviously see that in the British empire spreading around the world, converting, you know, um, converting native cultures uh, and other cultures by sword to Christianity, uh, which, you know, is an incredibly horrific and bloody process. I mean, 19 million people died in Bengal in the 19th century alone, just through um, uh, fam imposed famine by the British empire. We don't hear about that one too much. You know, the death toll is, um, uncountable, you know, let alone the, you know, the people who died in, in America, uh, you know, natives in America who were, who were essentially genocided, right. Or in Australia or in Africa or, you know, many other places. Um, and you know, it's, it's funny when, when you're, when you just don't want to, when you're talking about that, that drive, the drive to enlighten the planet or to spread the word 
and that, that's such a Christian drive to, to spread the word, to have, you have the good news. So if you have the good news in a book and through a preacher and through letters, you use those. But once you get uh, more advanced, you can use the mechanism of empire. And then in our day, you can use uh, satellites and you can use, you know, the internet. And, you know, back when this, in the early 70s, you know, a lot of Christian fundamentalists were like really trying to weave the satellite and the idea of like satellite-driven tele- television signals into this model that was simultaneously positive because it could spread the word and enlighten the world and negative because it was constructing the kind of antichrist system. And that's where you get into this <laughs> logic of inversion that you talk about around Crowley, uh, which I think is also a really uh, important part of your book about how if we really look closely at these things, they're often already yes and no. They're often already polarized. And that's certainly true of like Christian models of the contemporary uh, technological world. On the one hand, this is how the good word gets spread and how the you know Christian values get become dominant. And at the same time, it's the mechanism of the Antichrist. It's the way that control happens. It's the new, the new world order. But when you're talking about that desire to spread, and I think about like the, the sort of unquestioned belief, at least among the 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 people working, not necessarily the folks at the top, but like you know within Facebook or whatever, like we're gonna put we're gonna put satellites everywhere. Everybody's gonna be able to get on the internet, and that's gonna bring you know. And you're like, where does this crazy idea come from? So kooky, but it totally makes sense as a repetition in a secular form of this this kind of Christian drive. And and really, I don't think you can, like, like you, I don't think you can understand what's going on, even in all these secular domains, without understanding the power of these scripts. And I love the way you use that term script, because it doesn't mean that it's the truth, but it doesn't mean it's just some idea or a myth that maybe these people believe, but if you don't believe it, it doesn't have any influence. No, it's something deeper and more unconscious than that, spread perhaps by some very knowing forces, but also it's just kind of in our air or in our cultural matrix that's very difficult to get out of. So in a way, like for mm-hmm. me, that that's ultimately um, expressed in your book by uh, the reading of Crowley, of like for all his inversion, for all his perversion, for all his subversion and his attempt to start a new order and break it all down the way that he himself was just very faithfully fulfilling a dispensationalist idea, the idea of different epochs that are evolving in the world that was programmed in him from the get-go when he's a little kid by the Plymouth Brethren, which I think is a wonderful way of, of framing him and as a sidelight, I have to ask you, did, did you get a lot of grief for that? <laughs> did Not you? as much as I hoped. <laughs> he's, such a, he's such a good Christian boy, Crowley. <laughs> he, was just, he was just doing the Lord's work. He was a little naughty, hoping people noticed, maybe. Um, so was he yeah. aware of that? Do you think he was aware of it? Or how do you deal with that part of it? Like, you know, yeah, like I the conscious, unconscious kind of thing. Well, he, I mean, Crowley, okay, here's, okay, as a, this doesn't necessarily work into the narrative of the book, but here's, here's my read of Crowley, right? Crowley, my, you know, my 10,000 foot view of Crowley, which has changed a lot over my life because he's such a complex individual. Um, I think it's real simple with Crowley. Crowley um, uh, achieved pre or full enlightenment states in his late twenties or early thirties because of not of the golden dawn, by the way, but because of the Theravada uh, Buddhist practices that he was doing with Alan Bennett. 
Um, my take on what happened with Crowley is he, you know, the enlightenment experience in, in, you know, Theravada Buddhism or Hinduism or, you know, Eastern traditions tends to be, or the waking up experience tends to be the understanding of oneself as inherently divine and um, free from scripts and, um, you know, not any, not, any, not separate from nature or the world in the slightest. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, it's, of course, it's the old cliche, the more you talk about it, the more you get tangled up. But my take on Crowley with what happened is that he touched enlightenment and did not still could not get out of the fundamentalist script that he grew up in. And so actually Crowley becomes quite easy to understand if you look at him from that angle, because I think what happened is he experienced at least briefly an enlightenment state. And then the way that he contextualized it, the way that he interpreted it was through the script of apocalyptic Christianity. Because if you look at Christianity, there's only, you know, Christianity as a script, as a, you know, a role-playing game, if you will, only leaves a couple positions open for somebody who is enlightened or more awakened than the average sleeping human. And that's basically Jesus or the Antichrist, right? So I think basically what happened is Crowley touched enlightenment and decided he was the Antichrist or at least the, the beast 666, right? Because that was the only thing that made sense within his worldview, even though, yes, he intellectually understood Buddhism and Hinduism very, very well. Deep down, I think that, you know, whatever his compounded guilt you know, he wasn't going to go around claiming he was the Messiah, although he kind of did in this weird anti-Christ sense. I think he just decided he, <laughs> this was his model of enlightenment is that he had to be the Antichrist, you know, which is a very, you know, like any, look, you know, any teenage stoner, you know, or any teenage acid head can decide that, right? So, and I think what follows is this kind of spectacularly ornate and disturbing and at times profound and at times very very um wrong uh car crash <laughs> you know and um and and from crowley but i think that you know i think that crowley crowley's interesting for a lot of reasons i mean you read his his confessions and he says up front at the beginning of the book that at, from an early age he decided that he would enact the book of revelation but from the devil's side right and that he wanted nothing more than to be the devil's left-hand man or something like that. And it's interesting, you read his diaries from the Abbey at, of, of Chefalu period in the 20s, and there's periods in there where he's having these, even as late as the 1920s, where he's having these, where he must have been, what, 45, I think, where he's having these moments of maybe I should just give all this up and rejoin the church and, and things like that. And, and interestingly enough, Leah Herzig, who was with him at the Abbey, did convert back to Catholicism. I think uh, multiple of the early Thelemites might have uh, reconverted. It was common uh, for a lot of the decadents too before that. You know, Huismon hmm. is a great example. I mean, it's it's definitely in the story. Um, and I'd, I'd love to, I could keep talking about Crowley all day. I, I really enjoyed your account because as someone who's wrestled with him and been fascinated and marked and, you know, he's like in the family, whether I want him to or not, the way in which you you kind of came to come to terms with it is, uh, is I think, really helpful. And I think helpful for, for people who are maybe a little earlier in their occult studies who need a little bit of a wake-up call. It's like, it's not like it's not worth really 
taking the stuff on because there's a lot of profound material and a lot of great writing too. I mean, he's a beautiful, his best writing is, is some of the best writing of his era, in my opinion. I think he's a great, he can be a very powerful mm-hmm. writer. Uh, and, uh, I so I just wanted to wrap up Crowley real quick. If you were just, sure. if you were move on to something else, I really feel like you mentioned wrestling with Crowley. I mean, yeah, like we all have to, in a sense, like the Western, you know, anyone interested in Western esotericism, you can't overlook him and you can't just brush him aside because he's, it's kind of like, you know, Freud was not a great guy. He was really a nasty piece of work in a lot of ways, but you can't just be like, a psychologist and gloss over Freud, you know, and I think with Crowley, you know, another metaphor that I've used is, you know, um, you know, just imagine like basically like Crowley shit in the pool sometime back in the early twenties. And we've been trying to clean it up ever since, but he'd eaten a lot of good stuff first. So, you know, there's still some gold in there that we're trying to find. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's a, I'm going to sit, that was going to stay with me for a little while. Well, it, it's kinda, you know, that's kind of what happened, you know, it's like, and I mean, we're still, I mean, when did Crowley die in 1947, you know, it's 20, what, 2019 now, and we're still trying to cope with the mess that he left and the advances he made. So, well, so we have about a little less than 10 minutes left and, and I'm just going to, you know, jump to the quick on with a simple question, which is that how are we doing on the task of trying to escape the apocalypse script these days? And if there's anything we can do as magicians or thinkers or, uh, people trying to wake up. How do you see that process, whether we think of it as magic or spirituality or, you know, real see- seeking for, for true transformation as individuals or in, in the culture, how does that work vis-a-vis the, the evident fact that the apocalypse script in multiple mutations is, you know, everywhere you turn? Well, I think you hit it on the head earlier and just what you're saying there, which is just understanding that that's the script that's been running. And it's, your, you know, we, we believe that we live in a post-Christian culture, but you can see the, excuse me, you can see the same pattern getting done over and over again. So what was the inevitability of the um, second coming, you know, we can, we can see the same script running, just the details, uh, the details and the names have been changed to, you know, uh, uh, not protect the innocent or, uh, you know, within the inevitability of communism or, you know, some of the ideas of the new age movement in the 20th century, or now, of course, the big one is transhumanism and the singularity. And of course the whole thinking around, um, ecological apocalypse and, and, oh, the world, you know, like we never escape the apocalypse. It's just that the terms get changed. It gets, uh, um, put through, you know, economic or, technological terms. So the most important thing is just rip out the script, you know, because if you rip out the script, then the manifestations become way less of an issue. Now you can ask yourself better questions and see the data uh, in front of you. And, and, you know, it doesn't change what's in front of you, but it changes your approach to it. I mean, I was talking to Doug Rushkoff earlier about this today, and he makes the same point in his new book in Team Human, where he says that you know, we're, we're building all of this hyper technology and it's all being run by this script, this program of hyper predatory capitalism. Well, hyper predatory capitalism goes back to the Protestant work ethic and this whole idea of empire and this idea of perfecting humanity. And it's all, I see it all as the outgrowth, this kind of Faustian, um, what, you know, outgrowth of the same primary impulse 
So I think the best thing to do is just rip out the script. And of course, you can't just rip out a script if you don't have something to replace it with. And one thing that writers have been talking about for a long time, which is you know still what we need to get to grips with, is, which again, you mentioned earlier, you hit the nail on the head, which is um, going towards a more imminent view of reality, of understanding that divinity is here. It's not separate. We don't need to rip up and destroy the world to get to some ideal. Ideal, It's all around us to have this more holistic view of the world as inherently divine, of everything is here now, right where you are sitting now. And um, it has been so well exemplified by some of the Eastern traditions, by Hinduism like, uh, and Buddhism, not that those traditions don't also have their issues and not that there isn't something inherently problem problematic about just you know doing the oriental the oriental the orientalist thing of of deifying other cultures because all these things have you know all human um belief systems have their issues but you know just chill out man you know it's like stop trying to destroy the world to make it into something that it's not and and then once i think once we make that little shift of understanding that this is where we are and it is as it should be. And there's no great hereafter or a great reward to get to. Then we can look at the technology that we have. We, I mean, we have, a, look, we, as we all know, we've had all the technology we need to fix every problem that humanity has. And we're getting more, we're getting things like AI and machine learning that have a great potential both for harm and for good for doing things like finding the cure for cancer, for stabilizing the environment. We've had, we've had all the tech, we've had all the resources, we've had all the manpower, we've just lacked the will to put it all together. And the reason we've lacked the will to put it all together is because all of our will is going towards this idea of this apocalyptic idea. You know, it's not greed only. It's not, you know, just, you know, the, the logic of hyper-capitalism. It's a much deeper, it is a spiritual script and this is something that I think people on the left need to understand as well. It's like everyone's running on a spiritual script, right? And, uh, and, and we need to understand that instead of just dismissing it so we can understand how to go forward and how to talk to each other and how to come to a consensus as people on this planet where we don't kill each other. So, Yeah, yeah, I can really, I really resonate with w- what you're saying and also the, the point you make at the end of the book where you talk about the sort of uh, end result of... of Western esoteric practice with all its complexity and all of its apocalypticism and its visionary dimensions and things. And you kind of, you know, you reach the end of the game or, you know, a, a, a plateau and you find that you're, you're, you're just, you're, you can recognize that things are just the way they are and they're good the way they are and you are the way you are and there's no, there's nowhere to go and that's good. And one of the ways I think about that, that different script is that, it is kind of a mess, and it, it it pushes back against the desire to perfect. It is kind of a mess, but it's in the mess where you meet the others. You don't meet the mm-hmm. others in the perfection. You meet the others' real meeting in the mess, where there's noise and slop, you can't quite get it right, da-da-da. And that's great. That's okay. Just mm-hmm. just love it. You know, get in there like a little toad and squish around the mud, you know, and... and it, it does it to me that that's an attitude that allows you to look at the problems and look at some terrible problems and to think like yeah maybe the best we're going to be able to do is is just kludge some half solution for a little while that's but that's what the mess that's what it's like to live in a mess and mm-hmm. uh and and it's that perfectionism and you know living in the bay area it's just amazing to me that 
how unthinking people are about a form of perfectionism that also serves capital so obviously and not human beings. Say again? Optimization. Optimization. Optimization of everything on all levels. Wow, that doesn't sound religious at all, does it? <laughs> yes, you got there. You got their number. Uh, so we just got a, a minute or two left. This is a, a great, uh, a great conversation. And since we, I just wanted to give a, a little plug for a Ultra Culture podcast. So, what are you trying to do with the podcast? What's your What's your goal other than having interesting conversations? Yeah. So. Uh, the subtitle, so the podcast is called Ultra Culture, excuse me, Ultra Culture with Jason Louvre. And you can just find it on iTunes, just search my name or Ultra Culture, go to my site, jasonlouvre.com. And the subtitle is Meetings with Remarkable People, you know, riffing off the Gurdjieff book, Meetings with Remarkable Men, because I don't only interview men, obviously. It is the 21st century. Um, and it's it's real simple. I you know, if I was to summarize what I'm trying to do in one soundbite, it's to try and get our wisdom on par with our technology, right? You know, it's been pointed out many times by many people that the technological speed of uh, the speed of our technological progress is, uh, is in, unfathomable. We can't keep up with it. I mean, like we've had atomic bombs for how long? Hydrogen bombs. We're entering a world of nanotechnology and AI and uh, bioweapons and God knows what and autonomous weapons. And, and we need a spiritual technology that's as, that's com- as comparable, or we need to win the wisdom arms race. And that doesn't, by the way, just mean corporate mindfulness training. This is the thing that people are all into now, you know, learning mindfulness, you know, and if you, if you listen between the lines, it's be mindful on those spreadsheets, be mindful about your timesheets. <laughs> yeah. You know, that- the Time, be real mindful. That's not spirituality. <laughs> right. Well, that's another topic, and we're, we're going to have to to end it there. But uh, Jason Louv, thanks so much for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Thanks, Eric. That was a that was a great combo. All right. Until next week, keep your minds open. 